Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Professor Amira Benison joins the show again. On August 31, 2021, Professor Benison joined the show, and we had a conversation that explored what scholars know about the previous Almoravid Empire's hegemony in the Mediterranean basin. The previous state, the Almohad Empire, came up in that dialogue. And so today, Professor Benison is back on the show, and we're going to have a functionally similar conversation to that previous episode, format-wise, but we're going to focus the conversation on exploring what scholars know about the Almohad Empire's previous hegemony in the Mediterranean Basin. Professor Benison is a professor in the history and culture of the Maghreb in the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Cambridge, based in the UK. She's author of the books, The Almoravid and Almohad Empires, which was published by Edinburgh University Press, and The Great Caliphs, The Golden Age of the Abbasid Empire, which was published by I.B. Taurus. And Professor Benison joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Amira. Thank you, Andrew. It's lovely to be here again. I'm looking forward to talking about the Almohad. Me too. Amir, it's good to connect with you again. So I'm going to ask a similar question that I asked last time we chatted, Amira, to create enough background and context for the conversation today, and then we'll work our way into the details. What was the Almohad Empire? The Almohad Empire is a successor to the Almoravid Empire, which we talked about uh, before. Um, it emerges in North Africa in the High Atlas Mountains uh, in the south of what's today Morocco, uh, among a different tribal group, the Masmuda Tribal Confederation. And uh, as people may recall, the Almoravids emerged from the Sahara Desert and they were from the Sanhaja Tribal Confederation. So the Almohad movement is interesting, though, as it isn't simply a group of tribes, but it's also a religious movement. And it's inspired by a figure called Ibn Tumat, who is a Masmuda Berber himself, and who went on a journey to gain further education. Uh, the locations he visited are actually quite debated, and we can perhaps go into that a bit later on. But in, in any case, he acquired quite a lot of contemporary Islamic knowledge and came to the conclusion that the Almoravids were fatally flawed in their approach to religion. Uh, so he gathered uh, a large support base amongst the Masmuda tribe who had a variety of different reasons to be um, irritated by their Almoravid overlords, including economic issues related to taxation, related to access to the trans-Saharan trade, and a number of other things. And um, so they were quite willing to join Ibn Tumat in a movement against the Almoravids. And this coincided with the problems that the Almoravids were facing uh, on the northern frontiers of their empire from active Christian efforts in the northern Iberian Peninsula, what's now northern Spain and Portugal, to push back against um, against them there. So the Almoravids ended up uh, facing 
if you like, uh, the enemy on two fronts. And they were severely overextended. And over a number of years in the early 12th century, they were re replaced in North Africa by the Almohads, who created a new empire, which actually had a really different shape and was, if anything, a more Mediterranean empire than the Almoravid Empire. The Almoravid Empire was a sort of a long strip running from the northern Iberian Peninsula down through what's now Morocco and into the Sahara. In contrast, the Almohads uh, moved much further eastward in North Africa and actually over several decades in the 12th century created an empire which included what's today Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, southern Spain and Portugal. So it's a vast empire um, and very much a Mediterranean empire. So they are really, they really do merit the title uh, of an empire which had Mediterranean hegemony, even if we're talking primarily about the Western Mediterranean rather than the Eastern. And the empire survived for um, a little over a century. They conquered the Almoravid capital of Marrakesh in 1147. And the date generally given to the end of the Almohad Empire is 1269, although that was the culmination of their loss of control over their territories all over North Africa and in the Iberian Peninsula. That was a very detailed first response, Amira. Thank you. And that provides us some... Um... Uh, initial background and context, but then there's also some points there that we can probably speak about a bit more and uh, work into the details a bit more. When it comes to this conversation, what do scholars typically rely on for sources? We're actually a bit luckier when it comes to the Almohads than, the Al than we are with the Almoravids. Um, there are quite a few historical chronicles from this period. Uh, some of them are actually extant, and some of them are enfolded within later chronicles whose authors have quoted from their predecessors. So we have a range of uh, materials which are actually from the period, uh, which is very exciting from the historian's perspective. Uh, these documents and chronicles give us a sense of how the Almohads saw themselves. And of course, we then have additional materials, some later or some from other areas, which view the Almohad empire from outside. The vast majority of these materials are in Arabic. There are, there's a biography of Ibn Tumat, uh, written sometime after his death by an individual called Al-Baydaq. Um, there is the chronicle of Ibn Sahib As-Salat, who actually came from the Iberian Peninsula um, and spent a lot of his life in Seville and he writes a lot about what was going on in Seville during the Almohad era. He was also uh, part of the court circle, so he's got a lot of insights into how Almohad government worked, how it was constructed, uh, what kind of ceremonies took place. So it's a fabulously lively account of a fairly short period at the end of the 12th century. We have another Almohad chronicler called Ibn al-Qattan, um, someone called al-Marakushi, who 
lived in the early 13th century and actually migrated to the east. So he kind of explains the Almohad Empire to an audience in the Middle East. And then there are Middle Eastern historians who also write about the Almohads and have kind of little synopses from information they've heard from people coming from um, North Africa or the peninsula. So there's quite a rich array of materials, including some archival documentation. Most of the, the, the sources that you referenced there, including the different names, Amira, were those people that were part of the Amahad M Empire? Can you speak a little bit more about uh, the various contemporaries at the time who were writing what their affiliation or affiliations were? Yeah, sure. All those people who I've mentioned by name were people from the Almohad elite who were within the core group around the Almohad caliph. Uh, as I said, Ibn Sahib of Salat came from Seville. He joined the group of religious scholars uh, who were based at the Almohad court, a, a group called the, the Thalaba, a word literally meaning students or seekers, uh, in the sense of seekers of uh, religious knowledge. Al-Baydak is very interesting. He uh, is a North African. Uh, he clearly spoke um, one or more of the North African languages, uh, the languages collectively uh, called Amaziyah today or Berber. Um, although he, he uses the term uh, the Western tongue, Elisern uh, al-Gharbi, to describe uh, those languages. And he joined the movement very early on, and he traveled across North Africa with Ibn Tumat from uh, Tunis all the way back across North Africa to Marrakesh. So he gives a very insightful sort of eyewitness account of things like the fall of Almoravid Marrakesh to the Almohads and the early military campaigns and um, the emergence of Ibn Tumat's successor, Abdul Mu'min. Um, and Abdul Mu'min is a really important figure because he is really the person who actually builds the Almohad empire. Uh, Ibn Tumat has a religious vision, but if you're looking for the, the military and political brains behind the emergence of this massive empire, it's Abdul Mu'min. Um, in terms of the other people I mentioned, Ibn al-Qatan was also in the court circle, um, as was al-Marakashi. So these are all kind of people from the Almohad elite who have a fairly pro-Almohad approach to writing history. But later historians from North Africa or historians in the Middle East are not necessarily pro-Almohad in their approach and they do they do present them slightly differently um there is one issue i could mention in terms of how we write the history of the almohads which um scholars have picked up on and this is a sort of certain um removing of very specifically almohad terminology and references to almohad institutions from the historical record later because Almohad doctrines were quite radical and quite revolutionary, and one could consider some of them um, heterodox um, from the broader Islamic perspective. So later on, there seems to be an effort to kind of paint them as more 
normal Sunni Muslims in their approach rather than to uh, keep maintaining this idea of their specificity. Can you speak more about in your in your opening response you you spoke about that there was some disapproval that they had with the with how the Almoravid empire was 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 governing can you speak more about uh what the issues that they they took were and can you speak about uh what's known about how they came into rule and then formed their their state sure yes the the critique the almohads had of the almoravids focused on their perception that the almoravid emirs or rulers were quite ignorant, that the Almoravids as a whole were sort of ignorant Saharan tribesmen. They didn't really understand Islam, so that they weren't in a position to lead a community of Muslims or rule over a community of Muslims. The Almoravids were actually working very closely with a particular group of jurists, jurists of the Sunni Maliki School of Law, And the Almohads also were very critical of this group as having a very exoteric, literalist interpretation of Islamic law and not, if you like, seeing the the deeper spiritual resonance of the religion, sort of letter of the law rather than sort of morals and ethics in a broader sense. Um, And this kind of critique is one of the reasons that Ibn Tumar tends to be associated with a a very important Eastern Islamic religious figure, Al-Ghazali. And one can probably think of Al-Ghazali, who died in 1111, as being in some ways the father of mature Sunni Islam. And one of the things that Al-Ghazali was very concerned about was sort of bringing more mystical, pious trends together with law to make religion into something sort of all-encompassing that is like, yes, one follows the rules, but one follows the rules out of a deep spiritual conviction and a desire to be a good Muslim, not just because they are the rules. So that's the kind of approach of Ibn Tumar, and so he, he and his followers bitterly criticized the Almoravids for their religious leadership above everything else. They were also able to point to other aspects of their behavior, which they considered um, a bit heterodox or unusual. Um, And among them were that the um, freedom of women under the Almoravids and the prominence of women in political life. Uh, one of the historians I mentioned, Al-Murakushi, is, uh, has a well-known few lines where he sort of dismisses the Almoravid empire as an empire that failed because women were in charge of everything and that every kind of male wrongdoer had a female patron and that this was sort of the, the heart of the problem, which is obviously a caricature but it just gives you a sense of uh, the kind of criticisms that were being launched against the Almoravids. Um, but one must also see, I think, that in terms of two 
different peoples who were opposed to each other by the early 12th century, sort of the Sanhaja against the Mahmuda of the High Atlas, because Ibn Tumas and then Abdul Mu'min gained their support base primarily amongst the Mahmuda tribes of the High Atlas Mountains. They were defeated when they went when they first moved against the Almoravids in Marrakesh in 1129, but then Abdul Mu'min moved back to the mountains, and he created the empire by making alliances and conquering the mountains. And once he had secured the mountains and the mountain tribes, he then came back down with his armies and gradually picked off different Almoravid cities in North Africa, moving actually, if you like, sort of in a counterclockwise direction. So he sort of moves up from the High Atlas through the Middle Atlas to what's now Western Algeria and um, the city of Tlemcen. And then he pushes back west through a break in the mountains towards the reef of northern Morocco and then down to Fez and Meknes before continuing the circle by going on down to Marrakesh, which was the last Almoravid city conquered by the Almohads in 1147. So the Almohads create an empire, but it takes them quite a while to do this. So although their criticism of the Almohads is quite vitriolic, we shouldn't forget that there were a lot of groups who still supported the Almoravids and indeed resisted the Almohad conquest quite strongly for quite some time, a good couple of decades. Okay. What kind of government model then would you say that they had, if you were to describe it? Well, as I mentioned with the Almoravids, the starting point has to be that medieval government is a light-touch government anyway. That being said, the Almohads very much build on Almoravid foundations and develop uh, probably the most bureaucratic empire that had been seen up until that point in North Africa. And it has a number of different components, and this is not entirely different to other medieval Islamic governments. In the sense, you have, if you like, the men of the sword, the military arm of government, um, which was composed of indigenous North African tribesmen of various back back backgrounds, amongst whom the Mahmuda tribe predominated. Later on, there was also a certain recruitment of Arabic-speaking tribes from further east, uh, from what's now Tunisia, who moved across uh, partly by invitation and partly by force on the part of the Almohads and resettled in what's now Morocco, and a variety of other military contingents from the Iberian Peninsula, from sub-Saharan Africa. The Almohads even recruited a group called the Ruz, um, which comes from the Turkish Uruz Turks, um, who were fighters who had moved through the Middle East and into Egypt by this time. They were actually uh, military recruits of the Ayyubids in Egypt, a band of whom came further west and found employment with the Almohads. So even though they're called Ruz, so one might assume they were Turks, so 
probably several of them were Kurds, uh, but they were part of uh, the eastern military resources of the Ayyubids in uh, Egypt and Syria. So that, those are the men of the sword. But then you all have the religious scholars, the Talaba, whom I've mentioned, who were in charge, if you like, of defining doctrine, developing religious materials, uh, preaching in the mosques, leading prayer, and from whose ranks one also drew the judiciary, so judges and other um, legal functionaries. So those are the, the Talaba, and some of them were based with the caliph, wherever he was. Amahad caliph moved quite a lot. They were quite peripatetic. And then you have a scribal class as well. And in terms of the scribal class, the Alma has very much used the existing scri scribal class. So there isn't actually such a dramatic rupture between Almoravid government and Almohad government, as one might think, because a lot of people who worked for one subsequently found employment with the other. So we have a scribal class. These are people from the towns who have an education, who are skilled in Arabic letters. They know how to compose a formal letter from one ruler to another. They know how to compose poetry, which was a very important method of communication. Um, medieval North African and Iberian sound bites were formed of poetic couplets. So they're kind of <laughs> the tweets of the medieval Almohad empire were poetic couplets. And this was something that had been going on for a long time and continued past the Almohad era. So these men of the pen, this scribal group, are also very important in terms of government. And that, from amongst those groups, the Almohads almost, uh, sorry, also drew tax officials who worked with local elite to get taxes in and have a proportion of those taxes sent down to the capital of the empire, Marrakesh. And that was, that was done in probably a more rigorous manner than in previous eras, particularly in North Africa. You mentioned the term and you, you either said it singularly or, or in plural, caliphs. So is that one of the defining differences between the Almohad Empire and so their state and the Almoravids, their their previous state is that within the Almohad Empire they had the uh, the magistrate um, the position of a, a caliph and. Because if I if I recall, it was Amir was the was the term that was used with the Amoravids, and in, as part of this as well, this this question and this is probably a, a related second question, um, you spoke about a symbolic relationship that the Amoravids had with the caliphs to the to the east previously. So can you speak about that? Um, what what that dynamic? would have been if there was a relationship still uh, to, to the east uh, with the Almohad Empire? Yes, and thank you for the question, because as I uttered the word caliph, I was just thinking this needs explaining. So 
<laughs> your question is absolutely perfect. Um, I suppose one needs to begin by just sort of saying that the Arabic word caliph means successor or deputy. And one could interpret that as successor or deputy of the prophet or God's deputy on earth. And those meet it, those different meanings kind of varied between different times and places, how they were taken. But right from the outset, the idea was that the caliph was a single figure at the apex of the Muslim community, that there could only be one. And that was compromised in the 10th century when a number of rival caliphates emerged. But you have the Abbasids in Baghdad, the Fatimids in Cairo, and um, North Africa more generally, and then the Umayyads in the Iberian Peninsula. And all three of that, those regimes claimed to be caliphs. Um, both the Umayyad and the Fatimid caliphate sort of gradually faded out, but the Abbasids hung on in Baghdad till 1258 as sort of the nominal head of the Muslim community. So when we're talking about the Almoravids, uh, as a Sunni regime, they augmented their legitimacy and their prestige by seeking recognition and affirmation from the Abbasid caliph in Baghdad which was like an honorary title, if you like. And as you say, they were called emirs. Their offic the official title of an Almoravid ruler was Amir al-Muslimin, um, the commander of the Muslims. Whereas um, a caliph has a different title, which is formulated in a very similar way and sounds very similar, Amir al-Mu'minin, which is usually translated into English as commander of the faithful. Now, the Almoravids, sorry, the Almohads are different <laughs> to all their predecessors. Their idea of what the caliph was is quite distinctive, and it's part of the, the radical revolutionary nature of the Almohad movement. I mean, Almohad in Arabic is, uh, they, are, they are called collectively Al-Muahidun, which means uh, sometimes translated as Unitarians or monotheists, and they saw Ibn Tumat, the religious founder of the movement, as a figure akin to the prophet. Uh, they called him the Mahdi, which is a word which is similar to Messiah. So it has this idea of someone who's renewing the message and who is standing at the, the head of the community in a, in a similar way to the prophet. So when Abdul Mu'min succeeded Ibn Tumat around 1130, he was seen as the caliph or successor of Ibn Tumat rather than the successor or caliph of the prophet. However, by taking on the caliphal title and um, by conquering a range of different territories where perhaps people didn't really think that Ibn Tumat was the Mahdi or that Ibn Tumat could possibly stand in the place of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, Abdul Mu'min and his successors kind of 
played with being caliphs in whatever sense someone wanted to see them as being caliphs. So normative caliphs, Almohad caliphs. And in that role, they certainly did not recognize the Abbasids in Baghdad, nor the Fatimids in Cairo who sort of hung on until the early 1170s. So they actually emerge as probably the biggest and most important Muslim empire of their day. And there's a, because Islamic history often is Middle Eastern history, a lot of students of the subject don't realize how big and how important the Almohad empire was. If we think of a figure like um, Salahuddin or Saladin, he sent emissaries begging the Almohads for help against the Crusaders. He saw them as the biggest and most important empire of the Mediterranean at that time. Uh, in contrast, the Abbasids were really very much uh, weakened by this moment, and their leadership was very nominal or symbolic. Did that position within the Almohad Empire, did it share both a, a government, did it, did it have both government responsibilities, governance, and religious responsibilities? A caliph is always considered a religio-political leader. So a caliph is always considered to be head of the religious community as well as the political community. So that that is different to the Almoravid period when the Almoravid ruler was considered a political and a military figure more than a religious figure. So Almohad caliphs actually take quite an active role as heads of the religious scholarly group, the Talaba. And they were all required to have a decent religious education themselves. And they sort of performed this role, if you like, by holding teaching sessions. So all the chronicles from the period, which are written by uh, people from within the Almohad elite, talk about different caliphs holding these teaching sessions court where they bring the Taliba in and teach them. Now, this may be more performative than real in some cases, in, in, in the sense that Al-Marakashi, for instance, talks about religious scholars collecting up sayings about holy war, about jihad, and sort of preparing the notes, if you like, for the caliph, who then taught an assembled group. But that being said, many Almohad caliphs were also considered to be quite expert in a number of religious sciences and other areas of knowledge, uh, philosophy, for instance. So they do present themselves as active heads of the religious establishment, active heads of the judiciary, as well as um, political and military leaders. Did they have... Do you consider their state to have a capital? The, you had mentioned that the caliphs traveled a lot. The, I believe a, a, a constructive translation for that, you had said, is the commander of the faithful. Did you, did they, do you think they considered themselves to have 
had a capital and where where was it? They used Marrakesh as their capital, as the Almoravids had done. Uh, they reshaped the city significantly, and somewhere might say that the Marrakesh really came into it sort of full mature form under the Almohads. And many of the remains that you see today uh, do date to the Almohads rather than the Almoravid period. There's very little Almoravid is left in the city, but the Almohads are a major mark on the city. They also founded and expanded other cities, and because it was a big empire, they did have a number of other centers which were very important and where caliphs would spend some considerable time. And the two cities that I would mention in that respect are Seville in the Iberian Peninsula, which was really the Almohad capital there, normally had one of the sons of the caliph as governor, and also Rabat al-Fat, um, modern Rabat in Morocco, which was another major center. And some scholars have argued that later in the 12th century, the idea was to move the capital to Rabat, which would have been a bit more central uh, in terms of the territories that the Almohads held both sides of the Strait of Gibraltar. What do you think the state's ambitions were at a higher level? What do you think, what do you think their ambitions were? It's difficult to say. I mean, the ambitions were really those of Abdul Mu'min and his sons, the so-called Mu'minid Caliph. Um, by taking on the title caliph, they did imply that they aspired to rule the entire Islamic world, or at least be acknowledged throughout the Islamic world. That never happened. They were acknowledged across North Africa as far as Western Libya, but not beyond that. But they, they did, and they they did see themselves very much as heirs to a Western Islamic Mediterranean tradition. And although they criticized the Almoravids, they built on their foundations. And going further back, they also built on the foundations of the Umayyads of Cordoba uh, and referred to them in various different ways in their architecture, in their writings. So they present themselves as one in a series of very important Western Islamic dynasties. Um, they were, like any empire, keen to make an economic mark. I mean, they needed to sustain themselves. They traded very vigorously, particularly in the Western Islamic region. And although they are seen as being quite hostile to religious minorities, that didn't stop them welcoming Italian traders uh, or traders from Barcelona into their ports, or even, in fact, from recruiting Christian soldiers uh, later on uh, in the early 13th century. So it's difficult to know exactly what they aspired to, but what they actually achieved was the largest North African empire in Islamic times. As a scholar, do you identify them as having 
a state language, both verbally and then also a, 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 a writing system? Yes, certainly. They, the writing system was Arabic. They were all their letters, their scribes uh, used Arabic. Chronicles I've mentioned were all written in Arabic. That being said, um, Amazigh or Berber had a unique position under the Almohads. As I mentioned previously, the Masmuda Berbers were the mainstay of the empire, and the Masmuda used a language which, as I said, they tend to call um, the Western tongue. And that Western tongue gained a status that the languages of North Africa had not held up until this period. Even Ibn Tumart himself taught in both the Western tongue and Arabic, and he's described as being a master of both. Those who were appointed to positions in mosques in this period had to be able to speak and give sermons in the Western tongue as well as Arabic. So there's actually quite a high level of bilingualism in the Almohad Empire and a, a celebrating and recognizing of the Western tongue that is quite unique. Uh, although the Almoravids who preceded the Almohads and, and the Marinids who succeeded them in what's now Morocco were indigenous North Africans, they were Arabized and they didn't give um, an Amazigh language space within the more formal public uh, areas of life. But the Almohads did. Um, so sermons, prayers, teaching materials, uh, might all be rendered in the Western tongue as well as Arabic. And even on sort of major ceremonial occasions, <laughs> the, the length of time taken would have been doubled because sermons had to be given in both languages. And they were. Uh, a scholar called Linda Jones has done quite a lot of work on um, Almohad sermons and, and their bilingualism. And it's really very unique, and very interesting. In the last episode, we touched on coinage with the Almoravids. Can you speak about what what currency they they used in the with the Almohad Empire? Did they begin to mint different coins? Can you can you expand on uh, currency with this empire? Yes, the Almoravid currency was gold, uh, based at a coin called a dinar, a gold dinar, which was made out of gold, which came from West Africa. In fact, the amount of gold declined quite steeply with the rise of the Almohad Empire. They actually they did mint gold dinars, but in significantly lower quantities. What they did mint an awful lot of was uh, silver coinage. They controlled a lot of silver mines. And one of the very distinctive features of their currency was that, like many of the aspects of the Almohad movement, it was 
completely unique and different. So they started to mint square silver coins and silver coins um, in this period are known as dirhams. So they, they minted these square silver coins. And in fact, you know, of course, this is probably just a, a later myth. When Ibn Tumart first challenged the Almoravid Amir Ali bin Yusuf in Marrakesh, one of um, Ali bin Yusuf's advisors is supposed to have warned him, you know, be careful, this is the man of the square dirham, you know, this, is, this man is going to overthrow you, basically. Um, and obviously, in due course, the Almohads came to power and square dirhams were minted. But, you know, as we know, you know, the majority of coinage is round. Um, there are other places that have minted square coins, but it's fairly unusual uh, in this part of the world. So this was, again, a way that the Almohads were, if you like, signaling in a very tangible way to the population of their empire that they were masters of a new dispensation, that the world had changed, you know, that these, these gold coins, round gold coins were being replaced by these square silver coins. Uh, and even their gold coinage, which was also was called a dinar, had a, a square within a circle to sort of symbolize this sort of the, the arrival of the square and its association with um, Almohadism. And as a reference point for everybody, I can't speak for certainty about the terminology in in other other countries in the Maghreb, for, for instance, but I'm in Tunisia right now, as I mentioned in the introduction, and the, the currency it, in present times is still called dinar in, uh, in Tunisia here. Yeah, it's actually still called dirham in Morocco. <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So those terms have survived to the present for modern day currencies. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so how would you describe the government's overall support of culture and the arts within the empire? And can you share a little bit if there's any highlights that you think are worth mentioning about culture and the arts within the Almohad Empire? Yeah, I mean, I've already mentioned that they were great urbanizers and it's generally within cities that uh, culture flourishes and develops because there's more disposable income. People can live off their words, their writing, their material creations in a way that uh, doesn't really happen in more rural areas. So their investment in cities like Marrakesh, Rabat, Seville, Baz, and other cities in North Africa was really important for creating environments where there was a market which wanted to consume cultural artifacts. And the era is seen as a moment of, sort of flourishing in various different uh, aspects of art and culture. There's a, there's a bit of a contradiction here, because like the Almoravids, there was, there's one strain of older historiography that sees both the Almoravids and the Almohads as very repressive, fanatical regimes which destroy the culture of earlier periods, particularly in the Iberian Peninsula. But that view is very, very much being nuanced 
these days and the many areas of uh, cultural production in Almohad times are now very widely recognized. So it's not just uh, buildings, architecture, decoration, but also an area that is very prominent in this period, in fact, is uh, philosophy. Some of the great philosophers of the Western Islamic Mediterranean are operating under Almohad auspices and are patronized by different Almohad caliphs. Um, some of the most famous figures in this respect are um, Ibn Tufayl, who wrote um, an allegorical story called Hay bin Yaqban, which means um, alive, son of awake, and uh, it's a long allegorical tale, uh, which is about a child abandoned on an island who grows up with nature all around him, uh, fostered by animals, by a gazelle, and it's through that experience that he comes to understand God. So if you like, it's, he, his approach to the divine is based on his observations of nature. He's then visited after many years by someone from um, a neighboring island, which was kind of surprised to find him. Um, I, I should say that this Arabic-Islamic allegory is sort of the, the origin of the Robinson Crusoe story. Um, so that, that's the sort of the way it develops. But um, Hay ibn Yatvan is visited by uh, an individual following a sort of scriptural religion like Islam, Judaism, or Christianity from another island. And um, they teach each other, they engage with each other, and then they kind of go back to the other island in an, in an attempt to kind of sort of show the truth to the ordinary population following their scriptural religion. But then ultimately they decide that that's impossible to do, that, you know, ordinary people are kind of somewhat ignorant and there's no point really trying to raise them to um, the spiritual height. And so these two men just end up on the island living, living their lives out together. So Ibn Tufail is a, a really important figure and he was a member of the intellectual circle uh, around the caliphs and according to al-Marakushi he's the person who actually introduced a more famous philosopher Ibn Rushd known as Averroes in um, Spain to the caliphs and Averroes or Ibn Rushd was really the person who transmitted the Aristotelian tradition back into the West and um, was the leading light behind, for instance, Thomas Aquinas's Averroism so, and his sort of approach to uh, theology. So Ibn Rushd is a really important figure. But when I say channel, that doesn't mean that he simply took Greek philosophy and passed it on. Um, the philosophical tradition, which was passed on into um, Latin Europe or Latin Christendom, was very much the Arabic Aristotle. It was how Aristotle was glossed, understood, 
and worked on by people like uh, Ibn Rushd himself. So he's a very eminent philosopher. He was also uh, very important in terms of the um, evolution of Islamic law. So these kind of figures were all around the caliph. They, I mean, they also had clusters of poets around them who were composing panegyrics and other kinds of poetry. Um, and one area that was also flourishing during this period was um, textiles. Um, the textile production of the Islamic world in general was um, amazing, very high quality, using a number of different fibers, whether we're talking about cotton, linen, hemp, um, wool, silk, all these kind of fibers were used and uh, woven into a endless array of different items of clothing, um, curtains, cushions, rugs, carpets, towels, I mean, you name it, veils, caftans. And these items were very sought after, not only across the Islamic world, but also in the Christian north. And some of the best examples of Almohad fabrics that we actually have are those that were used to make the vestments of Christian bishops or Christian kings, um, and that they were actually often buried in these kind of beautiful robes, which had actually been made out of Almohad fabrics. So actually, it's quite a good, it's quite a good period in terms of the flourishing of the arts and culture. Okay, very, very interesting. So working our way to the end of this period that we're speaking about today, Amira, what happened with their empire? Yes, that's quite a large question, and it, but it also is in some ways similar to the situation which was faced by the Almoravids towards the end of their empire. So just as the Almoravids faced opposition on two fronts in both North, North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, so the Almohads faced problems in a number of different areas of their empire, which overstretched them militarily and made them unable to really adequately cope with military challenges anywhere. And at the same time, the ruling elite itself began to fracture and fragment for a variety of different reasons. So if we were to start in the Iberian Peninsula, this is... The early 13th century is a period in which the Christian kingdoms that evolve into Portugal, Castile, and Aragon are really uh, consolidating themselves and beginning to push forward south on the Muslim frontier. And there was a famous battle in 1212, um, Las Navas de Tolosa, uh, which the Almohads lost. And this is often seen as a watershed moment for the Almohads, that they never really regained the initiative after this battle, after they were defeated by a Christian coalition at Las Navas de Tolosa. And of course, this, this is very negative for their reputation in North Africa as well, uh, the fact that they lost at Las Navas de Tolosa. Uh, and so they, they lost credibility if you like, and they no longer seem to be great warriors who could defend Muslim territory. That reputation sort of fell into tatters. 
But one of the reasons perhaps they weren't effective at Las Navas was because they were already facing quite a lot of difficulty in North Africa, where a breakaway lineage of the Almoravids had um, established themselves um, in Bijaya on the coast of Algeria and had been able to launch sort of guerrilla attacks across Almohad territory in what's now Algeria and um, Western Tunisia. And just sort of, they were real, <laughs> they were called the Banu Raniya, and they were really like guerrilla war warfare warriors. You know, they would like rush around, destroy things, damage crops, attack towns, but then melt away again into the countryside. So although Almohad armies were repeatedly sent against them, and although the Almohad armies were probably stronger numerically than the Banu Raniya, they couldn't do much because the guerrillas just melted into the countryside. And one feature of the late Almohad army was actually it was very slow. It, the armies were big and they were slow. They sort of lumbered across the countryside. So uh, swiftly moving guerrillas were quite an effective force against them. So this sort of contributes as well to the decline in the prestige of the Almohads. And another fatal blow to the empire was struck in the 1220s, in the late 1220s, in fact, when the empire had sort of fallen into three sections, what we might now call, what's now sort of Tunisia and eastern Algeria, western Algeria and Morocco, and the Iberian Peninsula. And the, the Almohad groups in each of those different areas, the Almohad elites, were a little bit different to each other, and they were all competing for dominance within the empire. And a new caliph made his way down from the Iberian Peninsula to Marrakesh um, in 1227-1228, someone called Al-Ma'mun. And he had a lot of support from the Almohads in the Iberian Peninsula, among whom the idea that Ibn Tumar was the Mahdi now seemed a bit like a quirky, strange, superstitious idea. So he decided to try and consolidate his position by saying that Ibn Tumar hadn't been the Mahdi, removing his name from coins, removing it from prayer formulae, removing it from sermons. But this was absolutely fatal because, in a sense, this was the only glue still binding the Almohads together, this idea that they were the bearers of the message of Ibn Tumart, and Al-Ma'mun's unwise gambit led to the breakaway of the Almohads based in what's now Tunisia, um, who went on to become the Hafsid dynasty of Tunisia. And they're called Hafsids because their ancestor was one of uh, Ibn Tumart's companions, somebody called Abu Hafs Umar. So from his name Abu Hafs, we get Hafsid. Um, so this is the moment, in fact, when what now Tunisia breaks away from the Almohad Empire and becomes a political ent entity in its own right and sort of disengages from the rest of the Almohad Empire. So Al-Ma'mun 
really does seem to make a big doctrinal and political mistake by um, removing allegiance to the Mahdi. It was restored by his successor, but it was it was too late. And a number of different other tribal groups in North Africa also begin to rise up and push against the uh, weakened Almohad administration in Marrakesh. Then we have two main lineages, the Zayanids in Tlemcen, who become rulers of the central Maghreb, what's now Algeria, and uh, the Marinids, who eventually are the ones who remove the Almohads and defeat them slowly by slowly during a period really from um, sort of the 1230s on up till this final date of 1269 when the Marinids uh, conquer Marrakesh. Okay. You always provide detailed and thoughtful responses Amira, and it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Benison wrote, she's author of The Almoravid and Almohad Empires and The Great Caliphs, The Golden Age of the Abbasid Empire. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Amira and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.